Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. We've been taking a couple of weeks last week and, and today before Thanksgiving to talk about something that it turns out was just as needed 2,000 years ago as it is needed today. And they lived in such a hyper-divided world, and there was racism and prejudice and, and tribalism just all through their world, all throughout their world. And it seems, sadly, like it's increasingly that way in our world as well. And, and we're more divided every day, and, and even among family members and, and that kind of stuff, you kind of hear about division and different ideas and different values and that kind of thing. So I know that the Thanksgiving table is going to, going to be full of fun and exciting conversation and so we figured out, or we figured that we'd talk about this a little bit and, and kind of give us some, some ways to navigate all of the conversations that we're going to have over the holidays and uh, just help you save Thanksgiving, somebody. We want to, we want to help you out. And, and so uh, last week we talked about the idea that we, you know, we, we all kind of argue and fight to prove that we're right. But if we're not careful, we can write someone right? Because, you know, we're right in every argument. We can write someone right out of the conversation. We can be right and, and damage a relationship. We can be right and, and damage a career or damage a marriage or, or hurt our kids, you know, break trust. And, and, and as we looked last week, James the Just, who was actually the half-brother of Jesus, who had a reputation for making the right thing happen whenever we're pe- people were at conflict, he actually told us that that's the wrong kind of right, that if you're right like that and you kind of argue someone out of the conversation, that that's not the right that God wants. And he gave, we landed on this verse last week. Human anger does not produce the righteousness or the rightness that God desires. And, and this word righteousness, I kind of gave you permission to oversimplify it a little bit and just look at it as rightness. And you can be right for yourself. You can make yourself feel better. You can make yourself feel superior, and, and pretty soon you are self-right, or maybe we could say you are self-righteous, and that's just not what God is after. We tend to want to be right at each other, but God wants us to be right with each other, and it just doesn't make sense to, to win a battle only to lose what's most important later. And so the help that James the Just gave us last week and what we kind of landed on was be quick to listen, but slow to speak. Quick to listen, but be very, very slow to the point where you're late to speak. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. And man, I heard from a lot of people over this past week, Pastor, I really needed to hear that. And I think we all needed to hear that. Can I hear an amen? Because we're just really good at sticking our foot in our mouths and then shooting ourselves in the foot. It's like a double, double whammy there. But today we're going to kind of see this, this power of words idea, this conversation um, um, baton handed off from, from James to a guy named Paul who wrote a lot of the New Testament. And Paul was, was like James in that he steps onto the pages of history not as a Jesus follower, but actually as an unbeliever, as a Jesus skeptic. And, and he's actually first mentioned uh, as someone who's holding the coats for a mob that is stoning a Christian to death. And so Paul certainly didn't stall out or start out on the Jesus side, but he was brilliant. He was like this legal mastermind, this rising young star in, in political and in social circles. He came from a wealthy family. Uh, he drove his dad's Ferrari and, and went to an Ivy League school, you know, when he was growing up. And he loved, he loved Judaism. He loved being Jewish and, and how that, that made him so quote unquote right with God. And so Jews of that day, of course, they, have a, they had a problem. We see this all throughout the, the ministry of Jesus, the public career of Jesus, that you know, all of the Jews thought, well, we're right with God and everybody else, you're just on your own and we can't wait for the day that God kind of comes down and, and proves that we're right to the detriment of everybody else. And that's not really what God had in mind. And we see that again in the life and the public career of Jesus. But Paul ends up leverage, leveraging his education and leveraging his wealth and leveraging his connections to, uh, to try and stamp out this Jesus movement. He tries to stamp out Christianity. It, it threatened his future. 
of power and prestige, right? If he's rising through the ranks of Judaism and, and the Jesus movement is kind of, you know, shutting Judaism down, well, then he's got to do something about that. The, the Christian movement, it elevated the status of women. It elevated the status of slaves and gave equality and individual worth to each and every person. It challenged people on, on the issue of forgiveness and, and, and reconciliation. It challenged the wealthy people to live lives of irrational generosity and, and, and elevate you know, the, the lives and the suffering or alleviate the suffering of the poor. And Paul was like, well, these are, these are terrible ideas. These are not the ideas that I've been working toward. And so he had Christians arrested and he had Christians dispossessed of their homes and, and even had Christians executed for being Jesus followers. But then one day, and if you've ever heard this, anybody ever heard the saying, well, I saw the light or, or the lights came on or someone needs to see the light. That saying kind of that language kind of originated with Paul. Paul had what we might call the original Damascus road experience. And there's this flash of light from heaven and we know it was Jesus and it, it, it knocks him off his horse and it kind of blinds him in his physical eyes, but it opens up his understanding to start seeing the world and, and see Christianity and, and see the risen Jesus a little bit different. And so instead of destroying Jesus' churches, Paul ends up switching sides, and he spends the rest of his life planting new Jesus churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. And he was really, really a remarkable figure in history, and he, and he lived. He, he existed. Nobody doubts that. Nobody argues with that. Paul and his documents um, are miraculously and just really in incredibly preserved for us through history and archaeology. And so he would start churches, and then later on he would like write them a letter back because they didn't have you know video conferences or FaceTime back then. And one of the churches that he wrote a letter to was in a city called Ephesus. And in Ephesus, those were non-Jewish people. So he was beyond the borders uh, of Israel now. And in the Bible, there's kind of three classes of people that are talked about at first. It's Jews and there's Gentiles, and then there's this class of people called Samaritans, or this nationality of people. And the Jews were supposed to be God's people because their ancestor Abraham got uh, into a covenant, into a promise with God. They were supposed to be God's people because they were Abraham's people. And the Gentiles just were not God's people. They were everybody else outside that nationality, and then the Samaritans just couldn't seem to make up their mind. So God's plan in everything was for the Jews to be the light for the world. The Jews were supposed to exist for the Gentiles, and if you're not Jewish like me, I'm not Jewish, we are Gentiles. We are what the Bible might call Gentiles, and they were supposed to be a light for the world, but they kind of got it crossed up, and they wanted to watch the world burn. They didn't want to be a light. They wanted to watch the world burn. And so their, their plan was to be the Jewish people against the rest of the world. You know, after all, the Gentiles were pagans. The Gentiles did not worship the one true creator God. They worshiped multiple gods. And anybody remember in, maybe in high school or in college, uh, Roman uh, mythology and Greek mythology, right? And, and what happened is the, these folks had, you know, a ton of different gods and any kind of passion, any kind of selfish drive, that people had going on in them and, and any kind of group of people had together, they would, what they would do is they would just invent a God for it. You remember back when uh, Apple started out with the iPhone and all that stuff, they had that series of ads going on, there's an app for that, there's an app for that. Well, they had a God for that. You know, sex, yep, there's a God for that. Violence, yep, there's a God for that. Greed, there's a God for that. War, there's a God for that. Prosperity. And all of these quote-unquote gods, these small g gods, were how these people kind of personified their selfish passions and encouraged others to join in with them in pursuing these different kind of selfish passions. And, and it led to tribalism. It led to greed in that, that world. It led to disease. It led to orphans. It led to infidelity. It led to prejudice and violence and murder and brutality. So the Gentiles, they were definitely not God's people. And the Jews, they were supposed to be God's people. And then after Jesus, there was a whole other class of people that came along, the Christians. And we got to keep this in mind as we go forward. The Christians were a new kind of God people, and they were actually made up. We as Christians are actually made up of former Jews and former Gentiles who have all come together under the banner of Jesus Christ as being the true kind of king. And so in that early church, there were, it was weird to everybody 
Because there was no more national, you know, divisions of nationality. There were no more divisions of race or divisions of gender, you know, and any division of social status. It didn't matter if you were, you know, free or slave. It did not matter. You could become a Christian. And so Paul was writing to these Gentile Christians, former Gentiles who had become Christians in a city called Ephesus. And he's telling them, hey, you guys used to be Gentiles before, but now you're not. And so let me talk to you about to how to navigate the contrast between your old Gentile way of thinking and your new Christian Christian, excuse me, way of thinking. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, he starts out and he says, so I tell you this, and I insist on it, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, you guys came out of this. You guys know how it used to be. You guys spent your whole life there, you know, and it's empty and it's futile and nobody knows this better than you former Gentiles. And then he kind of turns into Dr. Paul and starts giving them a diagnosis over why that old way of thinking was so empty and so futile. He goes on and he says, they are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance. That's kind of a harsh word, right? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. And Paul's saying, hey, they're ignorant. But I'm not, just, I'm not throwing that out there as an insult. I'm trying to give you guys the diagnosis. There is something that they are not aware of. And the reason they're not aware of it is because their hearts have become hard toward other people. Now, again, these people, these Gentiles, these pagans, they worship the Greek and the, Romans God, the Roman gods. And their gods fought with each other. And their gods manipulated each other. And they tricked each other and deceived each other. Their gods used humans for what humans could do for them. But their gods did not give humans any kind of worth beyond what they could do. Their gods slept with each other. Their gods had different babies out of different relationships with each other, and they cut each other in half and banished each other into oblivion. And Paul's saying, hey, when you worship those kinds of gods, it's only natural that the result will be those kinds of things in your lives. But it left you empty, and that's why you're a Christian now. It left you broken and hurt, and that's why you are a Christian now. You, th- this is what happens when you follow your own personal passions. Eventually, your heart gets hard, so you're not compassionate anymore. You lose compassion. You have no empathy. You can't see things from someone else's point of view, and you don't even want to. It's a winner-take-all kind of world, and he who dies with the most toys wins. He who dies with the most sex wins, and he who dies with the most money, well, they certainly, it seems like they win. And so Paul's telling them, look, when you're guided and driven by your personal passions, you hunt down whatever you want in the moment, and you don't care how it affects others. It's every man for himself. But he couldn't say it was every woman for themselves because women were kind of victims of this way of thinking. The women had no status. They had no rights. It wasn't every woman for herself. In those days, might was right. And if you were meek, then you were weak. And it was bad luck to be poor and bad luck to be a woman and the worst kind of luck to be conquered in a winner-take-all world. And these pagans, all they were doing was worshiping and imitating their gods. And so Paul's like, that, that kind of life, serving those small g gods, it left you separated from the life of God. The one true God, Paul would have argued. The one creator God who made us all, who created each and every one of us with intrinsic value and worth. And because he made us all out of every nationality, he's the God with no prejudice. He's the God with no hatred because he's the one that provides everyone's needs. He doesn't care if you're rich or you're broke. He is God over all and he loves all. But he's saying, but your old way of life with that hard heart and lack of compassion, you were separated from that. And he goes on. He says, look, having lost all sensitivity... They're not sensitive anymore. They can't feel anything anymore. They don't feel pain or grief. They become callous towards the experience and toward the value of other people. They're insensitive to the ideas of honor. They're insensitive to the ideas of shame. Now listen, I, I planned on taking a little 
a little side trail here, so stick with me just for a little bit, all right? Honor and shame and justice and injustice, those aren't just words that you might find in the subtitle of the next Avengers movie. Like, honor and shame are big ideas. Justice and injustice, those are really, really big ideas. And so I want to camp out on this real quick, this, this idea of honor and this idea of shame, especially as it relates to losing sensitivity and giving yourself to sensuality. I want to just stay here for a little bit. To honor someone or to dishonor someone is a big deal because you are ascribing worth or taking worth from someone else. So think of a child that maybe does something praiseworthy. I've seen a couple of things on Facebook. There was a couple of beautiful little examples of children that had gone out into the community and were doing things for people or doing things for the firefighters. Children on their own like wanted to do these things. And when they interviewed these kids, it was so awesome to hear them say, well, my dad was telling me about it. My mom was showing me this need or showing someone who was in pain. And so I just wanted, and by their actions now, these children are actually bringing honor to their parents. That's what it means to give honor. But to dishonor someone means to bring attention to someone in a negative way. It means to invite outside evaluation in a way that diminishes someone's worth. That's how you dishonor someone. And this is so important, especially around here if you've been coming for a little while. We've been talking about the one command of Jesus. You know, when Jesus kicked off his new movement, he didn't give him a whole new list of rules. He gave him one rule, and that one rule was, you must love one another as I have loved you. That was the one thing that he left them with. This is a big piece, honor and shame and honor and dishonor. It's a big part of understanding Jesus' one command. Jesus was telling his disciples, you have to be willing to lay down you for the betterment of another who. You have to be willing to give up something of yourself to move somebody else ahead And then Jesus walked up a hill and laid down his life on a cross to give us a new kind of life that we were searching, we were desperate for, but we could never find. We could never seem to attain on our own. And really, when you get down to the Jesus command, the one rule, it's about bestowing honor on someone else. It's about sacrificing what I might want in a moment and giving someone else value by bringing attention to just how much I think you are worth. And when other people see what I do, and when other people hear what I say, and what I say about you, and what I do towards you or for you, it brings honor or it brings dishonor on you. And Paul's telling these guys, hey, remember your formal Gentile ways in your hearts. Those kinds of hearts are so cold and they're so hard that they don't live for the honor of one another anymore. They don't behave towards other people with consideration for how it might reflect on their worth. They're insensitive and they don't care about the effects of their actions and what that will have on the reputations of other people. Paul says they have given themselves over to sensuality. Now this word sensuality just means like whatever we use to flood our senses, right? Our five senses, sight, touch, taste, smell, sound, whatever you give yourself to that floods that. But when I say the word sensuality in our culture, what comes to mind? Sex. That's what everybody thinks when they hear this word sensuality, sexuality. That's one of the most common ways that this teaching, this idea, crosses across the path of our culture. And Paul's telling them, look, in the old culture that you guys came out of, you used to give yourselves over to sensuality. And you did not care how your sensuality might affect someone else's reputation. You weren't willing to prioritize someone else's value and worth over what you wanted in the moment. But you lived for your moment. You lived for yourself. You weren't willing to put pause on yourself to make sure that your behavior valued someone else, gave worth to someone else. And as this lands on the idea of sex and sexuality, especially here in 2018 America, and especially in the terms of sex outside of marriage and the marriage covenant, you know, we think a lot of times, and a lot of people say, well, 
I don't know if I want to be a Christian because they have this rule that you can't have sex outside of marriage, right? No sex outside of marriage because that's a, a rule. But the reason that people and the reason that Christians think of it as a rule is because of Jesus' one rule. It's because of the example that Jesus... It got, it got quiet in here. That's not a rule? Wait, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Hold on. Let me get there. Don't check out just yet. Got a little quiet in here. Just wanted to check. Figured I had everybody's attention, all right? The reason that this has been codified as rule, the reason that this has been held and thought of as a rule is because of Jesus' one rule, to love one another as... In other words, in the same way. In other words, to the same degree. To the same measure that Jesus loved you. And what did Jesus give up for you? And what has Jesus given for you? And what did he shed for you? What did he lay down for you? See, it's so, much, it's, so much, it's so much beyond, it's so much richer and fuller than that's a rule. It is something so much more beautiful and profound and more than just a rule. We love others as he has loved us. And so as a Jesus follower, I will only act and behave towards you in a way that conveys honor upon you. I will only act and behave towards you in a way that never diminishes your worth, but always makes others see you as more valuable than when I got into this relationship. Honor and dishonor. Honor. And now watch, watch this. I have given up chasing every other one because in you I have found the one. See, young men and young women, listen, you need to find someone who will tell you you're not just one of many, but in you I've found my one and only. I am sensitive to your value, I am sensitive to your worth. And I leave everybody else. The wedding vows say it this way, right? Forsaking all others. Because in you, I have found the one. And so unless we do vow to be together forever, I will not dishonor you in your future husband's or your future wife's eyes. Unless we do vow that we are going to be together forever, I don't ever want to leave a stain of regret on the story that you one day share with your children. I honor you. I value you. It's a choice that we have as Christians between honoring one another or putting my want above your worth. See, now isn't that so much better than it's a rule? Isn't that so much better than it's against my religion? Come on, somebody. And I'm not the only one. To, Christians aren't even the only ones to say this. There's an American poet, recent American poet. Look how she put it. Because if you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. If you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. Don't be mad once you see that he wanted it. If you liked it, then you should have put a ring on it. She went on to say, oh, 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 oh. Come on, this ain't even a Christian thing. This is a human thing. Look at, the, look at the bridge. Look at this. Don't treat me to these things of the world. I'm not that kind of girl. Your love is what I prefer. Read this last line with me. What I deserve. I deserve this. I need honor. I was created in the image of God. Not small g gods that chase after their passions and don't care how it affects anybody. Come on, somebody. Do you see it's so much better than that's against my religion? She goes on the last couple of lines of the bridge. Pull me into your arms. Say I'm the one you want. That's honor. 
Don't just tell me in private. You say it out loud. You say it in front of witnesses. You give me the honor that I deserve because I am a daughter of God. I am created in the image of God. I am a child and a son of God. Mm, mm. Isn't that that a longing that we all have? Isn't that something deep within each and every one of us to be seen as so valuable by someone that they give up what they want in the moment to honor my worth? And what's happening in our culture is there's this conflict because our culture seems to want to just open up sexuality and just there's this open sexual ethic and it doesn't matter. But then in, in movies and in music, it's like we, we can't get away from it as a, as a people. And it turns out that honor and dishonor are deeply wired into the human hearts because we're made in the image of God. It's what every dad wants for their daughter. It's what every mother wants for her son. But if you want honor, then you have to give honor. And if you want to live that dream, then you have to prioritize honor over every single action and behavior that might bring you dishonor. Mm, mm. Amen, Pastor Jared. Just had to get that in there. But Jesus and Paul, they're out in front of this 2,000 years ago. What Paul's basically saying is this, self-centered sensuality dishonors someone's dreams. You chase what you want in a moment, you're going to wreck someone else's future. Somebody else isn't getting what they hoped for. Someone else isn't getting the love and the value that they deserve. Someone else is going to end up hurt and alone and betrayed and with regrets and with tattoos with lines going through them careful when you tattoo that name. Maybe just go for initials. Maybe, no, I'm just, don't. Somebody's going to end up feeling used. Somebody's going to end up feeling empty. And maybe it's you. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's her. Or maybe it's the next generation of you, him, or her. Honor and dishonor. Honor and dishonor. It's what you were wired for. Paul goes on, or if we can cover again, 419, Ephesians 4.19, having lost all sensitivity. They don't care. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of greed. All they're thinking about is themselves. All they're caught up in is their selves and whatever will fill up their senses. They become selfish. They become me first, and eventually they become me only. Paul says there's a better way. There's a better way. That, however, is not the way of life you learn when you heard about Christ, when you heard about a Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, only had a three-year public career, but yet his love displayed for people like you and people, even those of us that have experienced dishonor, even those of us that do have regrets. Can I hear a thank you, Jesus, from somebody? It doesn't matter our past. What matters is your future. And in Jesus Christ, there is a brand new and restored future that you can't find. Anywhere else, there's something better. You were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. That greedy kind of me first, that greedy kind of I don't care if it dishonors you or what it says about you, that kind of way of life is not the Jesus way of life. But when we see him, we see someone who loved us so deeply. He loved us so deeply that he gave up his all only to gain some of us. Think about it. These chairs are not full this morning. He didn't even gain the whole world, but he's trying to gain you, and he's trying to gain me. And he says through Calvary, if I can at least get you, it is enough. You are enough. You are enough. You're worth it. You have incredible value because you are made in the image of God. Oh, come on, somebody say, I was enough. Come on, somebody say it. I was enough. Come on, I was enough. 
Come on, can you lift up your hands and your voices and give him praise and thanks this morning? I was enough. I was enough. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It was enough. You were enough. He knew if he could gain you, if he could gain me, it was enough. So he loved me. Paul said it in another place. He gave himself for me. He has honored me. Mm, I feel the presence of the Lord. Come on, can you worship this morning? He has honored me. He has honored you. I don't care who you are this morning. I don't care where you've been this morning. He has honored you. Just the possibility of finding you, it's enough. It's enough. Amen. Come on, I feel the presence of the Lord. I, can you just stay there just for a moment longer? Come on, thank Him this morning. Come on, bless Him this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, there's healing that can happen right now. Come on. All over this room, can you tell Him, thank you, Jesus, that you saw me as enough. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. To all of our guests this morning, we, we don't apologize for pausing. We, we're just some extremely grateful people because we did not deserve the love of God. No matter where you are, no matter what doubts you have, no matter what misgivings you have, whatever reason you have for not being a Christian yet, I'm sure if I knew your story, it would be a good reason. And I was where you are, and they were where you are. None of us are better than anybody else. We just are so glad that one day he said, you are enough. He goes on, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted. It's being eroded and degraded by your deceitful desires. You ever chased a deceitful desire? You ever chased a, a bait and switch, a passion, a, a longing that you had that promised you one thing, but once you got what you thought you wanted, found yourself empty. You found yourself broken. You got what you wanted. You got who you wanted, but the reality did not live up to the promise. But then those deceitful desires, they don't leave you there. As if that first round of pain wasn't enough. As if that first round didn't do enough damage. It didn't take every single thing away. When that deceitful desire came to you again and made you another promise, it promised you next time. Next time. It didn't work out this time, but that was his fault. It didn't work out this time, but that was her fault. It didn't work out this time, but that was just circumstances. You didn't have enough resources. And Paul is saying, take that thinking off. You know where it left you. You know the condition that it left you in. Get rid of it. He's like, guys, we've been over this before. Instead of chasing that self-gratification without, without caring how it affects other people. You need to do this. Here's what you need. You need to be made new in the attitudes of your minds. You need to put on the new self created to be like the one true God. Stop chasing the little G gods, the selfish gods, the chaotic gods, the murderous and scandalous and unfaithful and fits of rage and lust and hate. There is a new way of life. It's like God. It's like God. It's like the one who created us all, who loves us all more than we could ever understand. Live the life like the one who thought about you, thought about your honor, and gave what he knew would give you the worth and the honor that you deserve. You are to be like God, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the true righteousness. This is the true rightness. This is the true holiness. Not a holiness that disengages and pulls away, but a holiness that leans in and gives. Paul's saying it's a brand new day. It's a brand new day filled with honor and worth. And then Paul goes on and he kind of gives some other applications to this whole thing. And I, I wanted to hit 
this part first and kind of camp out there for a second. But he goes on and eventually at the end of chapter 4, he gets to the conversation piece that we're kind of talking about in this series and talks about how we speak and, and what we speak. You know, it's the reason for our talk today and, and, you know, about Thanksgiving and conversations with those who are in contrast to us. And here's how Paul applies what he has just reminded them of in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 29, he says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Once you've put on this new way of thinking, once you've decided that as a Jesus follower, you are going to determine in your life that you will only behave and act towards others in ways that honors them and never dishonors, now it affects not just your actions, but it affects your speech. It affects your words. So you don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. This new life affects your words. And I, this, this word in the Greek that we get unwholesome from, it carries the idea when the Greeks wanted to describe the smell of rotting fish, this was the word they used. Do not let any smell of rotting fish come out of your mouth. You ever done something that just makes somebody curl their lips? Right? Like in disgust, not in a good way, not like Elvis way, but to, like in disgust. You ever done something that just makes people like, oh, you're so gross. Any brothers have any sisters? Sisters, you know exactly what we're talking about if you had a brother growing up. And I'm trying to not be crude in my example, but you ever done anything? Just make somebody just curl their lip in disgust. Have you ever been in commuting traffic and looked over at the car next to you and they're picking their nose or they're picking their teeth? It's just all gross. And Paul's saying, if you're about to say anything to anyone that would make someone curl their lip, you better hold it in. You better shut your mouth, zip your lip. If it's not something you'd say in front of your grandma, zip it. It's not something you'd say in front of my mom. No, not your mom. My mom, like my mom. Zip it. Don't you say. If it's not something you'd say in front of your boss, zip it. If it's not something you'd say in front of your bishop, zip it. Don't let any rotten fish smell come out of your mouth. And I taught my, uh, taught my daughter how to burp. I had one son, one and another one, so I taught her how to burp. And it turns out that the most important part of teaching your daughter to burp is teaching her when not to burp. <laughs> Told her, don't burp around granny or I'm going to get in trouble. And Paul is saying, there are some things you should just keep to yourself. If you wouldn't say it to someone's face, don't put it in someone's ear. Don't let any whispers, any unwholesome talk Come out of your mouths and fill up somebody else's ears. Notice this, but only. See, that's a very restrictive word. But only. Yeah, but what about when I only? But what about when I remember what they only? But what about when I've been done wrong? But only. But only what is helpful for building others up. Now notice this. He doesn't say you never have a tough conversation. But he's saying when you have a tough conversation, you only use words that don't have a rotten fish smell to them. And they are only the kind of words that will build someone up. Paul's saying you can imagine that every conversation, it's like a construction site, and you got a two-by-four in your hand. And you can either use that two-by-four to club someone over the head, or you can use that material to build something useful, to build something helpful, so that when you leave the conversation, they feel honored. 
So that when you leave the conversation, their worth is not diminished with dishonor, but you have built them up. Only do that. And again, what's Paul tying all this back to? This whole thing is kind of caught up in the idea of Jesus honoring us. It's not that he never has hard words for us to hear, but when he speaks to us, it is only ever for our good. It is only ever to build us up and to change us and to set us free from what we used to be. And Paul is saying, you must love like Jesus loves, so only, only speak words that build up. Now, can you imagine that? Can you dream with me for a second? If this was the guiding principle in all of our conversation, can you imagine what our families could be like? Can you imagine what your marriage could be like? Can you imagine what your relationship with your kid or your relationship with your parents would be like? Can you imagine what people at work would say about you? Can you imagine what your next evaluation would be with your boss? Can you imagine if this is what the church could get right? That every conversation we have with someone who is not a believer, we only speak things that build people up and lead them out of the destruction and the wreckage. They've never had anybody speak life into their life. They've never had anybody build them up instead of tear them down. But we, as the church, have the best example because he has spoken to us. So only, only, What kind of church could we be? Now look at this. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. What do they need? They need a piece of my mind. That's what they need. We talked last week. Be careful how many pieces of your mind you give away. Come on, somebody. We're into others' first territory again, aren't we? We're into others. For, we're back in honor and dishonor land. We're back at quick to listen, slow to speak, quick to listen. Before you get to that really important point that you have to say, stop and listen real quick, even if it makes you late to speak. You mean I have to take the time to learn someone's story before I speak? Only if you want to live this new way of life that you learned when you learned about Jesus. It's the new way of life offered by the one who laid his life down to give you what you needed. Who laid his life down to give what benefited you, even though it cost him everything, everything, everything. I'm just about done, but Paul kind of goes on and he takes it one more place that I think we need to go to. And honestly, this next subject, I, I think, you know, I, I almost cut the, the message off here, and I know y'all are maybe wishing I did just five more minutes, but Paul took us to a place that if we could just, you know, if we can figure this one out, if we can get to the root of why we seem to have so much trouble only speaking words that build up and never letting unwholesome or degrading words come out of our mouth. It feels like he's kind of changing the subject, but really Paul's getting to the heart of the matter. And Paul's saying, if you're going to get this right, if you're going to be the kind of person that builds things instead of breaks things, then you're going to have to deal with something. And in verse 31, he says this, get rid of all bitterness. He doesn't say stop being bitter. He says, get rid of all bitterness. Can you imagine if you went home and you didn't put any more trash in the bin, but you never took the trash out that's there? What would your house smell like in a week? He didn't say stop being bitter. He said, get rid of it. Take out the trash. Get that smell, that corrosive thing out of your life. Don't let it live where it doesn't belong because Paul knows and we all know that bitterness doesn't necessarily always show up in what we say, but bitterness will always creep into how we say what we say. Bitterness and the odor of bitterness will always wrinkle someone's nose. You might be able to force yourself to say the right words, but your body language, baby, it's speaking way louder than your mouth. 
Oh, come on, you know what I'm talking about. Don't act innocent in this morning. Bitterness will stain your words. It will stain your conversation. It will stink up your relationship with your volume and your tone and, and your attitude. And if you're going to be a builder, it's not just about content. It's about intent. It's not just about what you say. It's about why you are saying what you are saying. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth and get rid of all bitterness. And here's the thing about bitterness. Most of the time, we're bitter over what someone else has said to us. We're bitter over someone else's words that came to us or we heard about us, right? Maybe we grew up and there were no encouraging words. Maybe we grew up and there were some encouraging words, but they always had that little barb of sarcasm, right? Maybe you're coming out of a marriage where you couldn't do anything right. Or maybe you're coming out of a relationship where words were used to control you and beat you down and keep you down. Now we come into new seasons of life and new relationships and we're dealing with the shrapnel of wounds from our past. And if we're not careful, we can let the pain of our past sneak into our present and rob us of our future. Paul says you have to deal with this. You're going to have to take out the trash of your bitterness. Man, the hard thing about this, and I don't have time to get all into it, but the hard thing about it, the way to get rid of bitterness is forgiveness. And that is hard. Forgiveness is hard. Listen, I don't pretend that what I'm talking about or what Paul was writing to us about, I don't pretend that it's easy. And I feel in just a few minutes to cover this, it feels almost like I'm not giving it the treatment it needs. But here's the thing about forgiveness. Forgiveness is giving someone from the past what they don't deserve so you can give those in your present what they do. Give them the second chance they don't deserve. Give them the love they may not deserve. Give them what someone from your past does not deserve so that you can give the people in your present what they do deserve. Parents, get rid of your bitterness. Listen to me. If you're on your second marriage or maybe if you're a single parent, you've got to take out the trash of your past. You can't let that seep into your current and your present relationship with your child. And if you don't take out the trash from your past, it will influence your present and damage your future. Think about it. There is so much to unwrap in bitterness and forgiveness. I, I was worried that this was going to feel oversimplified, but listen to me. It's hard. Forgiving is the hardest thing you will ever do, but when you forgive, that is when you are most like your heavenly Father because we did not deserve His forgiveness. We did not deserve His grace. We did not deserve His mercy. But is there anybody in the room that is glad beyond words that I am forgiven? My past has been erased. It's covered by the blood of Calvary. rid of all bitterness. Bitterness leads you to rage. Anger. Your kids just know how angry you are about him or about her, about that, about your past, and you can't get over and quit brawling. Every time you get on the phone, every Facebook post, every passive-aggressive little slight that you do, and quit slandering. Quit talking smack and junk and gossiping. Gossiping is so evil because gossip tears down. Gossip dishonors. Gossip says someone is less valuable than the value and the worth that God gave to them in, on Calvary. Shut your lips if you're a gossip. Okay, Paul, but if I'm going to stop doing all that, then what do I do? How do I build up? And he goes on in verse 32 and he says, be kind, not be nice. Be kind. It doesn't mean you avoid tough conversations, but say the tough things in the right way. And be compassionate. Put them first. Walk a mile in their shoes. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak. Forgiving each other. There it is again. Well, how do we get rid of bitterness? Forgive. Well, what else should we do? Forgive. 
It's in there twice. Well, how much should I forgive? How much do I have to forgive? Remember Peter's conversation with Jesus? Jesus, should I? I know. I'll forgive them seven times, Jesus. Jesus looks at him. He says, seven times 70, maybe. But then it gets worse than that. Paul says it's way worse than seven times 70. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. I don't know about you guys, but I'm 29 years old. I think God has forgiven me way more than 490 times. That was like last week. (laughs) Forgive just as in Christ God has forgiven you. In other words, do for others what God in Christ has done for you. The context of our conversation, speak to others what God and Christ has spoken over you. Mm. Give honor. Give worth. Give value. Come on, somebody. Can you raise your hands and thank God for His his beauty and His grace? Come on, somebody. Can you thank God for mercy this morning? Take some time. Take a few moments all over this room. Come on, close your eyes. Thank you. Thank you for a new way of life. I came out of that old way of life, but thank you for a new way of life that I heard about when I heard about Calvary. That someone would die for me. They don't even know me personally. I don't know him. That he would love me. That he would live and give and eventually die for my honor. Mm, mm. Can you imagine what would happen this Thanksgiving if we did this? Can you imagine what could happen, what should happen, what might happen in your family if you would pause long enough to listen? If you would be quick to listen, slow to speak. If you would pause long enough to hear their perspective. If you would speak over them the words that Jesus spoke over you when He went to Calvary. Can you imagine this this Thanksgiving, if we vowed, Like if we tied a string around our finger maybe to set out reminder cards on every plate at the table this Thanksgiving, remind that we are only going to speak things that build people up. Imagine this holiday season, this Thanksgiving, if we let the grace that God has given to us shape every single word that comes from us. What would happen this week, I wonder, and I don't know your past, and Like I said earlier, I'm not trying to trivialize it or imagine that forgiveness is easy. It's not. It's incredibly hard. But what if just this week, just one week, maybe you can't commit to always yet, but just just try it on for a week. Maybe if you just decided to let some memories go. Maybe you just decided that when you saw them, you weren't going to bring that up again. Maybe you decided that when you saw them, even though your first instinct is to frown and to close up and to turn away, that you would just try You would just try the Jesus kind of way to turn toward them in mercy and kindness and open your arms and open your heart and just just be kind. Just be compassionate just as in Christ God has done for you. Just as in Christ God has done for you. What kind of week could this be? For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.